continuing the um, chapter on the six sense spheres in Dhammanupassana. Satipatthana, contemplation of the six sense spheres, can lead to recognizing this influence of personal biases and tendencies on the process of perception. Contemplating in this way will uncover the root cause for the arising of unwholesome mental reactions. This reactive aspect forms, in fact, a part of the above instructions, where the task of sati is to observe the fetter that can arise in dependence on sense and object. So, uh, if you will recall the um, the passage from the uh, uh, the sutta, it says, for example, he knows the eye, he knows forms, he knows the fetter that arises dependent on both. And he also knows how an unarisen fetter can arise, how an arisen fetter can be removed, and how a future arising of the removed fetter can be prevented. And uh, fetter is a, a bit of an unusual English word. Uh, it's more common in uh, Buddhist vernacular, but it means something that, um, that binds you, like a pair of handcuffs on your wrists or shackles around your ankles. That's a, a fetter. Something that is a, a kind of a, a, an imprisoning and a limiting uh, uh, influence upon a person. So the the, the uh, this is the way the word fetter is used, and the Pali is sangyojana. Sangyojana. Uh, the English word yoke and yojana, I believe, are connected. Yoke, yoga, um, and so sangyojana means sort of joined together, yoked together. And so you are um, you are limited by the 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 bond that the the fetter creates by joining you together. With, um, you're chained to a wall, or your hands chained together, or your your uh, legs, and so on. Although a fetter arises in dependence on sense and object, the binding force of such a fetter should not be attributed to the senses. Or objects per se. The discourses illustrate this with the example of two bulls joined together by a yoke, and the, the Buddha. There we go. You have a yoke there, uh, and the Buddha used a, he said a, a white and a black um, ox uh, joined together. So the the one ox representing the the uh, say the sense uh, the sense door, the eye, for example, and the other ox representing the object, like the visual visual form. Um, and the Buddha points out, uh, just as their bondage is not caused by either of the bulls, like the, the bond, the fetter, is not caused by the eye or by the, the visual object, but rather by the yoke, uh, the bondage of the two oxen together, um, uh, that is caused by the yoke that goes across their, their necks, so sort of joins them together. So a yoke, they both sort of have a bar across their necks and they pull the the cart together because of uh, they're being tied to the, the bar that joins them across the back of their necks. That's the yoke. So too, the fetter should not be imputed to either its inner or its outer conditions. Like the fetter doesn't come from the eye or from the visual object, um, but rather to the binding force of desire, uh, of, or desire and lust as the, it has it in the sutta. And that uh, reference for that is um, in the... Um, the Salayatana 
Vibhanga, the, the Connected Discourses about the Six Senses, that's section 35, Sutta number 232. And it's, a, it's in a dialogue between Venerable Sariputta and Mahakotita, and they're talking about this. And uh, Venerable Sariputta uses this image of the black and the white oxen joined together across their necks by the yoke. And so what uh, what is the yoke, what is the fetter, what uh, ties them together, is not the, the visual object or the eye, but rather the desire and lust that uh, is the, the binding force. In the discourses, there is considerable variation in the usage of the term fetter, which suggests that to speak of fetters, quote-unquote, does not always necessarily refer to a fixed set, but may sometimes include whatever falls under the same principle, in the sense of fettering and causing bondage. The most common presentation of fetters in the discourses lists altogether ten types. So these are the ten sanyojana, so these are most uh, familiar in relationship to the stages of liberation, uh, <coughs> stream entry, once returning, non-returning, and arahantship. So uh, the first three, belief in substantial and permanent self, that's Sakaya Ditti. And the second one, doubt, Vichikicha, so that's doubt, not about doubt about um, which, uh, you know, which jacket you should wear, but doubt about what is the path and what is not the path. Um, and then that, So that's Vichikicha. And then dogmatic clinging to particular rules and observances, that is uh, Sila Pataparamasa, so uh, Literally, Sila Pataparamasa literally means uh, taking hold of virtue and kind of cuddling it, uh, nurturing it, or fondling it. So, like, you're, you're taking hold of a principle and you're sort of owning it, keeping it, um, cherishing it. So, um, that uh, is usually uh, termed uh, attachment to rites and rituals, and it, and it commonly has a reference to um, spiritual practices like. Uh, bathing in the Ganges, or repeating certain verses, or um, shaving your head every two weeks, or whatever. So, Sila uh, Pataparamasa, but uh, Lumpur Chah would always like to expand that to refer to every other kind of conventions, or human agreements. So, like, you know, it is correct to drive on the left-hand side of the road. You know, the French and the rest of the world have got it wrong. You should drive on the left. That's that's attachment to... Uh, to uh, Silapataparamasa, and uh, or he would use the example of money, like they when they change the currency, they print uh, they print a new set of notes, and he'd say, you know, this isn't actually uh, worth, this isn't actually ten baht or a hundred baht or a thousand baht. It's just a piece of paper with some ink on it. But we say, oh, this is uh, this is ten baht, or this is a hundred baht, this is a thousand baht because of the shape of the of the patterns of ink on this piece of paper. But it's just describing a human agreement and. And the uh, British banknotes, I don't know if they still do, but they used to, uh, it says, I promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of one pound. Well, they don't have pound notes anymore. <laughs> Ten pounds. <laughs> so right there on the currency, it's saying it's an agreement. This, the piece of paper isn't actually 10 pounds. It's a, it's a description of an agreement between um, the, the, the person who's holding the, the piece of paper and the one who's being given it. So Ajahn Chah would point to that, you know, the, the, thing, the belief that there is real value in that piece of paper, that's Sila Pataparamasa. And then when they change the currency, and then the old notes suddenly become worth nothing. They just, or you can start a, a fire with them. But they, they used to be worth a thousand baht, then they change the currency and they're not worth a thousand baht anymore, just because of 
human agreement. So uh, that is uh, Sila Pata Paramasa is not just uh, religious um, or you know, uh, spiritual agreements and principles with, uh, uh, with that limitation, but rather it's you know, all kinds of social conventions, like also the attachment to being a, uh, a parent or a child, attachment to being a, um, uh, a judge or a, a university lecturer, attachment to being a, a monk or a nun. You know, that these are just Sila Pata Paramasa. To think there really is such a thing as a, as a monk or a nun. It's only a human agreement. It's just we call it, we call it uh, <coughs> monk nun. We call it being British. You have a piece, you have a, a piece of paper called passports, and it says, "I'm British." Look, I've got the passport to prove it. <laughs> but it's just a, a description of an agreement. That's all. So then the uh, the so those are the first three. So the 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 uh, realization of stream entry. Sotapanna uh, is constituted by those first uh, three uh, fetters being broken. Then the next two are sensual desire and ill will, Kamachanda and Vyapada. And so the once returner, the Sakadagami, uh, they are they weaken sensual desire and aversion, but they're still there. Um, and then it's only in the uh, Anagami, the non-returner. Then, uh, so as, uh, once returner means that uh, such a, a being who's reached that level will only return to the human realm uh, or higher realms one more time before their enlightenment. And then a non-returner, uh, anagami, uh, means that uh, a being who's re- uh, reached that level will uh, not be reborn in the in the human realm, but they are, or even in the lower deva realms. But there's a particular set of five. Um, Brahma realms called the Sudavasa or the pure abodes. The Pure Land Buddhism is based on, on that. And so the Anagami, say if Ajahn Chittapala is an Anagami, then when she passes away, she would be reborn in the um, Sudavasa, the pure abodes. And if she's a really kind of red hot kind of uh, Anagami, then there's various different grades, but the, the really kind of prime grade Anagamis become Arahants at birth. Uh, so that's. Um, uh, a nice option. <laughs> 80,000 80, eons of, uh, of uh, life as an arahant in the pure abodes. Um, that's also why Pure Land Buddhism got popular. You know, a long retirement in a really nice place before you pop off the wheel. You know. so, uh, but uh, whereas in the southern Buddhist teachings you have to be an anagami to get to the pure abodes in the northern Buddhist world, you just have to have uh, uh, unshakable faith in Amitabha Buddha. So it's, uh, it's different qualifications to, to uh, say, realize birth in those realms. Because uh, Anagami is, to, to reach the level of Anagami, you have to have completely eradicated um, sense desire and uh, ill will. Uh, and then the, um, <coughs> um, the last of the, um, of the fetters, uh, that's uh, Ruparaga, the craving for fine material existence. Aruparaga, the craving for immaterial existence, so attachment to blissful states of mind. Um, and conceit and restlessness and ignorance, Asmimana, uh, the conceit of identity. Uh, uh, restlessness, which doesn't mean the restlessness of being uncomfortable on your cushion. This is a much more refined kind of restlessness. It's a the restlessness that uh, that's kind of udacha at this level is that 
uh, the feeling that there might be something over there that's more interesting or more real than what's here. So that the insight, uh, the letting go of udacha at that level is there isn't a there. There, you know, there is here, here is there, there is, there's only this. So that to get to another time, to go to another place where something's going to be different is, is uh, uprooted. And then avija is the, is the last. So those five will go with, uh, the last five will go with arahantship. Uh, rupa raga, arupa raga, asmimana, udacha, and avija. The event. Um, escape the daily room creation uh, adapta without maybe even having uh, encountered a teaching. Would it be that he has been uh, a sotapana or a gregami in a previous life and was reborn and that he doesn't need the teaching in order to really understand it again? It might be so. Mm-hmm. He might even have been reborn in Holland this time around. Because uh, a sotapanna has a set of the, according to the Buddhist um, cosmology and psychology, uh, has seven more lifetimes, no more than seven more lifetimes, and the gates to the lower realms are closed, so they're guaranteed to be uh, to be born no more than seven times. Um, they can all be births in the human realm, but they can't be born as an animal or as a hungry ghost or in the hell realms. So they're born as a as a human being or as a deva. Um, so uh, that would mean that you can be a sotapanna at birth. Um, <clears throat> it doesn't mean to say that you would be giving dhamma teachings to your parents in the cradle. It's <laughs> 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 still uh, um, the u- the usual mechanics of learning how to walk and talk and, and all of that. But the um, as they, they as it's talked about when when this this question arises. Um, when, uh, if a child is born who is already a Sotapanna or a Sakadagami um, before they were born, then when they, the whole way that they relate to the world, they relate to uh, violence, they relate to honesty, they relate to property, uh, they relate to, um, you know, the experience of, of living is, is quite different from other children. And that, uh, and then when they would hear the teachings or they would hear, you know, spiritual principles, it would make sense. Uh, in an immediate and uh, impactful way that it w- would not necessarily do for other uh, other children of their own age. So they say. The eradication of these ten fetters takes place with the different stages of realization. Since all these ten fetters might not necessarily manifest in the context of actual Satipatthana practice, and since the term fetter, quote-unquote, has a certain breadth of meaning in the discourses, during contemplation of the sense spheres, awareness can be directed in particular to the fettering force of desire and aversion in regard to whatever is experienced. So he's saying, um, in terms of the Satipatthana, in thinking about fetters, don't worry too much about these various different nuances of fettering, but uh, just focus on the uh, the fetter of desire and the fetter of ill will so karma chanda the so sense desire and uh, the fetter of uh, biapada ill will and aversion and that um, uh, in terms of the, the um, what's the the binding force between what uh, 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 that causes the mind to be attached to uh, sense objects 
it's generally around liking and disliking is, is, is what he's saying there. The pattern of the fetters arising proceeds from what has been perceived via various thoughts and considerations to the manifestation of desire and thereby to bondage. A mindful observation of the conditions that lead to the arising of a fetter constitutes the second stage of contemplation of the sense spheres. And he's got another one of his, another one of his handy dandy diagrams here. Uh, <clears throat> the task of awareness in this case, paralleling the contemplation of the hindrances, is non-reactive observation. So that kind of um, clear awareness and uh, like with the um, uh, with the contemplation of the hindrances, uh, knowing the condition that causes their arising, um, knowing the conditions if it's present, knowing the conditions that lead to its removal, and thirdly, once it's removed, knowing how to to not let it arise again. So that's similar to the um, the same way of working with with the hindrances. Such non-reactive observation is directed towards individual instances in which perception causes desire and bondage, and also towards discovering the general pattern of one's mental inclinations, in order to be able to prevent the future arising of a fetter. So, say for example, if you um, if you know you have um, lustful feelings towards someone, and you know they're going to be around in a, a certain building. And coming to the sala at the meal time, you might even forget there's actually, there's food is involved because you know they are going to be there, and then you get oh right food yeah yeah oh yeah it's the meal time oh yeah, so the the fixation is on sexual desire and the the, the other person. Uh, if you're a food obsessive, you'll you will have forgotten there's other people going to be here because <laughs> food. Uh, and oh right oh right yeah Saturday all these people oh well. <laughs> Never mind, there'll be plenty for me. And uh, all the mind fixates on is the food, and the other, and the the other people just get registered as objects in the way of your food acquisition. I'm kind of overstating it a bit, but uh, I think we're all familiar with the same kind of uh, processes. So non-reactive observation is recognizing. Oh, okay. This is what my mind does when it's around the meal time. This is what my this is what my mind does when. It's around other people, uh, so get to know that and to to get familiar with that, uh, the karma chanda, the desire and lust that arises in relationship to seeing and smelling and hearing and tasting, touching, and so on. <clears throat> so that familiarity, as it says, knowing the conditions that lead to its arising. Okay, I'm going to the sala. Okay, food, right? Hunger, right? Okay, it's all there. Are we ready? Okay. So knowing the conditions that cause its arising, if it's present, knowing what leads to its removal, and then if it's been removed, then knowing what uh, is a good means of preventing it from arising in the future. As with the contemplation of the hindrances, the second stage of contemplation of the sense spheres, concerned with the arising and removal of a fetter, follows a progressive pattern from diagnosis, via cure to prevention. So knowing the fetter, uh, uh, curing, uh, you know, letting go of it, and then preventing it from arising in the future. In contrast to the contemplation of the hindrances, however, contemplation of the sense spheres 
places a stronger emphasis on the perceptual process. This constitutes an additional degree of refinement, since attention is here directed to the first stages of the perceptual process, which, if left unattended, can lead to the arising of unwholesome mental reactions. To fill in some background to this aspect of Satipatthana, I will briefly survey the Buddha's analysis of the perceptual process with particular attention to the implications of the latent tendencies, the anusaya, and influxes, asava, and also to restraint at the sense doors. This will provide the necessary basis for evaluating the early Buddhist approach to quote-unquote cognitive training and for examining the Buddha's pithy instruction to the ascetic Vahya that led to his immediate full awakening. And what he, so what he's doing there is saying that um, because, uh, like I was saying, knowing the, the, the patterns that the mind takes, knowing that the, your habits, your, your weak areas where the mind gets lost, where you get carried away through aversion or fear or desire, um, then getting to know that perceptual process and, uh, and seeing how that works is, is going to be a, a very uh, beneficial resource. So he goes into uh, some um, a detailed analysis, particularly of the Madhu Pindika Sutta, the discourse on the sweet morsel, the honey ball, that uh, I mentioned it quite a few times in these readings, and um, which I think just in the last time I was talking, how we, uh, the conversation about contact and feeling, um, that Ajahn Jitapal and I were speaking about last time. So the next section describes that perceptual process in, in some detail so that through understanding that and knowing that a bit more directly and clearly, you can see how the, um, the mind gets, uh, the attention gets caught by a particular object and then the, um, uh, the attention gets uh, absorbed in the uh, attraction, aversion, fear, and, and uh, possessiveness, and so on. So this next section is called the perceptual process. The conditioned character of the perceptual process is a central aspect of the Buddha's analysis of experience. According to the Madhu Pindika Sutta, which incidentally is uh, Sutta number 18 in the Majjhima Nikaya, the conditional sequence of the average perceptual process leads from contact, pasa, via feeling, vedana, and cognition, sanya, also known as perception sometimes, to thought, vitaka, which can in turn stimulate conceptual proliferation, papancha. And such conceptual proliferations tend to give rise to further concoctions of proliferations and cognitions, papancha, sanya, sankara, which lead from the originally uh, perceived sense data to all kinds of associations concerning past, present, and future. And I'll just read that little passage out, since it's uh, very pertinent. So Sutta number 18, this is one of those ones that's a, a key meditation sutta and very well, very, uh, uh, well worth getting to know. Dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. So the eye, visual forms, eye consciousness. The three together is pasa, contact. With contact as condition, there is feeling. What one feels 
that one perceives, what one perceives that one thinks about, pitaka, what one thinks about that one mentally proliferates, papancha. With what one has mentally proliferated as the source, perceptions and notions tinged by mental proliferation beset a man with respect to past, future and present forms cognizable through the eye. So uh, basically things get complicated and the, um, uh, it's a, a, the language is a little bit stilted. Um, beset is not an English, a very common English word. Beset means like surrounded by or pressured, uh, uh, under a state, in a state of stress or being kind of weighed down by. So the <clears throat> basically it starts off with a sense contact and then uh, it leads through this, this process um, with a sense contact where there's no sense of I or me and mine, there's just hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching. But by the end of the process, there's me in a state of tension with the world. Me not getting what I want, or me uh, running away from something that is dangerous, uh, me um, uh, fighting against something that, that I don't like. So there's a, uh, there's, uh, say, a, the, the whole creation of, and solidification of the subject object me who's frightened of this, me who's wanting that, me who's uh, let's say irritated by that, me who's possessive of this, um, that uh, sense of self and other alienation is is fed through this uh, through this process. So that's that's all in uh, Sutta number eighteen, Madhupindika Sutta. The Pali verb forms employed in this passage from the Madhupindika Sutta indicate that the last stage of this perceptual process is an event of which one is the passive experiencer. Once the conditioned sequence of the perceptual process has reached the stage of conceptual proliferation, one becomes, as it were, a victim of one's own associations and thoughts. The thought process proliferates weaving a net built from thoughts, projections, and associations of which the thinker, quote-unquote, has become almost a helpless prey. So you've woven this, this net of uh, concerns and fears and aversions and desires and anxieties, and then you're trapped in, the, and there's me trapped in this net um, that uh, the mind has, has woven. So which is an interesting point, that the, just the way the verbs uh, are, are used, it goes from being an active knower of the uh, of the contact and feeling and and thought to the the passive um, uh, say victim caught in the net the the um, the hunter's snare the crucial stage in this sequence where the subjective bias can set in and distort the perceptual process occurs with the initial appraisal of feeling vedana and cognition, sanya. Initial distortions of the sense data arising at this stage will receive further reinforcement by thinking and by conceptual proliferation. Once the stage of conceptual proliferation is reached, the course is set. The proliferations are projected back onto the sense data and the mind continues proliferating by interpreting experience in line with the original bias cognition. The stages of cognition and initial conceptual reaction are therefore decisive aspects of this conditioned sequence. 
so what the mind does with the sense experience like, you know, that uh, you say okay come to the sala it's the meal time I'm hungry right pay attention this is the nose this is just smelling of food it's just nose consciousness that's all uh, this is just the the scent and when I when I, my, my nose smells the food then my mind races after it and goes ooh they've done my favorite and off it goes so okay be aware of that so that um, that's a sense of alertness and attention to being ready for the contact and when that when that impact is there then ah then um, the, uh, the the attention is, is is sharp and so then the mind can see the process at um, Vedana and Sanya at feeling and and the uh, perception but without it leading into a whole um, uh, when I say a complicating process of thinking and papancha, vitaka and papancha and papancha sanya sankara and uh, as the, the Buddha encouraged apapanchang papancheti do not complicate the uncomplicated that was our greetings card last year apapanchang papancheti don't complicate the uncomplicated unless you want to suffer of course now the perceptual sequence described in the Madhupindika Sutta occurs in an elucidation of a short statement made by the Buddha in which he related his teaching to the dispelling of various latent anusati types of cognitions, sanya, and to overcoming the latent tendencies, the anusaya, that can come into operation during the process of perception. So before I go on to the Anusaya and uh, his comments on that, any particular thoughts, questions, reflections? Apapanchang Papancheti, that is in the Anguttara Nikaya. Um, I think it's in the Book of the Sixes. We printed it on the card. So you, if you look at last year's greetings card, it's got the reference on there. Yeah, I can't remember. I think it's the Book of the Sixes, but I wouldn't swear to it. But if you find a, a, a it's got a picture of the temple and a, a frosty rose. So then, I think it is something that personality views. So does that personality view? That's Sakayaditi. Sakayaditi is. Yeah, Sakayaditi. Sakayaditi literally means sa means true or real. Kaya is the body or the person. Ditti is view. So the view of the real person, which is the view. I am this body. I am this personality. I am a man. I am English. I am uh, Ajahn Amro. That's all. It, that's true, that's Sakayaditi. So Sila Pataparamasa is more like the conventions that, that we use. Like when you, um, when you pick up a book, if it's, an, if it's an English book or most European languages, they start at, at this end. If it's a Hebrew book, they start at, at this end. So <clears throat> that, um, yeah, that, these, that would be um, uh, the Sila Pataparamasa side of it. Yes. I'm still quite clear about Vedana. I think 
Vedana. Vedana as healing. It comes quite early in the sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, and to my understanding, it implies a judgment process. And it says good or bad or neutral. Wouldn't, but wouldn't that be created or um, influenced by higher cognitive uh, measures? So for myself, I learn what is no good, I want to avoid it. Which causes a feeling as a judgment process. Yeah, it's a a good question. But it's it's I mean you're a biologist type, aren't you? So it's it's like the very sort of uh, coarse biological function of good move towards bad move away that you get even in a like a a, amoeba that um, it's that kind of Raw, uh, you know, even before the thing, what it is has been designated as, you know, a color or a sound. Or it's there's a, our perceptual process is is geared to go advantage, move towards or danger, move away. So it's that kind of of attraction and aversion, that kind of the raw feeling. Because in in when the Buddha defines. Vedana, it's really, it, it's, in a way, it's more um, accurate to call it sensation. So, like the the, the initial sense impact in uh, on the system that is registering uh, advantage, disadvantage, promise, danger, or, or neutral. And so that that's how I, I read it anyway. So it's, that's why it's a precognitive reaction um, that the, uh, a living system. Has is most sort of basic level sort of uh, the, the kind of even before neurons, you know, like literally like a, an amoeba or you know plankton will will uh, be will detect uh, you know, adv- advantage in its environment and move towards it or disadvantage and move away. So that's how I, I read it. So it's it's not it's not the mind saying, oh that's nice, that will be <laughs> further down the the line, but it's it's almost it's like uh, if you have a uh, an object flying towards you, you know, you, you've moved, moved your head out of the way before you've even seen something coming. Or if you're walking through the, the forest, you, know, you're, you, you didn't even see the branch, but your head's moved out of the way because the, the eye saw the, the, the twig uh, that you were moving towards and that, that wasn't really registered, but it's, uh, it's, the system has spotted that and is, is reacting to it. Before thought and before, oh look, there's a twig. I better get out of the way. So that's how that's how I read it. Is there a, a learning component in there? Is there something that is actively acquired? I mean, it is probably very low before even any. You don't have to learn that it's hot to avoid. Right. Uh, uh, I don't. Uh, to me, I don't think so. It's. Uh, I think it's. It's sort of in the living system. It, it's sort of pre. It's precognitive. It's pre. Uh, I mean, not not totally un, sort of non-conditioned, but it's it's before a lot of the imprinting and and um, what you call kind of individuating. Uh, uh, you know, I am here. This is the this is the the stuff that is mine. This is not mine. This is good. This is bad. But it's it's like on the very sort of most basic level of a of a living being that it, what it needs to survive. Yes. Vedana should also be present in listening to music, isn't it? 
Well, that would be more, uh, well, there would be some Vedana, but that is using the word feeling in a different way. That's, that would be more in the Sankara emotion. I understand Sankara more like a reaction, and Vedana like the taste of the sense of Ah, uh, that's not how I understand it. It's uh, it's more the the sensation. So I mean, there can be a, a pleasantness there, but the the emotional tone um, is more in the sankara department. Yes, I think she's a problem. Um, coming back to that question, I I find that a lot about that, and um, what really helped me is to understand that uh, consciousness, feeling, and perception. On the feedback loop, so um, that often we don't catch the feeling on the first level. Oh, you're right. Yeah, it's incredibly and, early. Uh, so yeah. then yeah. often we catch it when the feedback loop has mm. already yeah. Yeah. worked. And yeah. then, of course, there's a lot of thinking or, or um, judging in it. Um, just a, a I mean, that's, that's a very good way of describing it. So I say that that's exactly how it does work. So we we, we don't catch the the raw feeling after the pasa, but uh, it's already sort of gone through a few iterations and interpretations. And just an example now with the sun coming out, the, the, my first creations of sun when I was so warm, and it's nice warm, and then finally the sun is warming a little bit. Then I remember skin cancer. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't be in the sun, I should have a head, I should have my. So then, then, the, then suddenly it's bad. You know, it's it's. I shrink away from it. So, not that that is not true, but it's it's a complication. Mm -hmm. You know. So, uh, yeah, that's an example. And uh, then, of course, there are much much more proliferating states. Mm -hmm. and, and another thing with consciousness, uh, yesterday I asked you what consciousness is conjoined with and disjoint with. Mm -hmm. And it was feeling, feeling perception, and consciousness. Conjoined mm -hmm. with and inseparable from. And then I looked up what else consciousness is conjoined with wisdom or discernment. So that means, uh, in in terms of uh, realizing there's suffering. Uh, so in even in, in in every moment with the with the sense pattern, if the wisdom comes in with the uh, consciousness, that's good. Of course, there are states when wisdom is not conjoined with uh, consciousness. But when wisdom happens, it's conjoined with consciousness. Mm -hmm. So that was one example. And then there's another. It's conjoined. The consciousness is conjoined with name and form, and not separable from mm -hmm. name and form. Mm -hmm. Right, they lean on each other. They lean on each other, and the explanation for that is wonderful. But I can't. I can't repeat it because it's a bit complicated. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, at this point, it's not needed. Mm. But, um, so, coming back to the wisdom part, uh, I found that was such a wonderful. It starts, it, it is, it's the Sutta 43, I think. Uh, 
This shorter series of questions and answers. Greater series. One who is unwise, one who is unwise, it is said, friend, with reference to what is it said, one who is unwise. One does not wisely understand. Friend, that is why it is said, one is unwise. Yes, the, the dialogue between Venerable Sariputra and Mahakotita. One who is wise, one who is wise, it is said, friend, with, with reference to what is it said. One wisely understands, one wisely understands. One wisely understands this is suffering. This is the origin of suffering, this is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. One wisely understands, one wisely understands, friend. That is why it's said, one who is wise. Consciousness, consciousness is said, friend, with reference to what is consciousness said. It cognizes, it cognizes, friend. That's why consciousness is said. Uh, so I won't go into it there, but... Um, so wisdom and consciousness, friend, are these states conjoined or disjoined? And is it possible to separate each of these states from the other in order to describe the difference between them? Wisdom and consciousness, friend, these states are conjoined, not disjoined. And it's impossible to separate each of these states from the other in order to describe the difference between them. For what one wisely understands, that one cognizes. And what one cognizes, that one wisely understands. That is why these states are conjoined, not disjoined, and it's impossible to separate each of these states from the other in order to describe the difference between them. Then he says, what is the difference, friend, between wisdom and consciousness? These states that are conjoined, not disjoined. And this is really useful to ponder. The difference, friend, between wisdom and consciousness um, uh, is this. Wisdom is to be developed. Consciousness is to be fully understood. And fully understood is, I think, in terms of Impermanence. It doesn't specify it then. I think there's a footnote. Uh, impermanence and suffering and not saying. So that's good, really. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, to continue. <coughs> Thank you. The discourses mention various types of latent tendencies. A commonly occurring set of seven includes sensual desire, irritation, Views, doubt, conceit, craving for existence, Bhavatanha, and ignorance, Avicca. The central characteristic of a latent tendency is unconscious activation. As the verb anuseti, to lie along with, suggests, a latent tendency lies dormant in the mind, but can become activated during the process of perception. In their dormant stage, the underlying tendencies are already present in newborn babies. So underlying, you can think of it as sort of underground um, roots uh, or bulbs, if you like, or, or the, sort of the, uh, the seeds uh, underground. A term of similar importance in relation to the process of perception is influx, asava. Also, um, uh, as he has in his note, um, Asava also means outflow, as when a sore festers, or fermentation, as when a liquor is brewed from flowers. So it's very it's one of those words you can't really translate into English particularly well. So uh, I.B. Horner translates it as cankers, because there's a, a, a sense of rot, something rotting, 
the sense of something flowing. So I.B. Horner um, translates Asava as the Kankas, and uh, uh, Ajahn Tanisro as the effluence, which always makes me think of a sewer pipe, the effluence. So if uh, Anagarika Valta was has ended the Asavas, Asavakaya, you would say his, he is effluentless, or his Kankas have waned. So these are uh, odd, odd phrases in English. Um, that uh, kind of uh, it's difficult to understand, but personally, I prefer the word outflow because of the sense of the mind flowing out into an object like that. But um, the uh, uh, the translation that Venerable Analio has here is in uh, influx, which is very handy uh, and I think quite uh, appropriate too, because it's like the uh, as he says, the influxes can flow asavati into and thereby influence. The perceptual process, so that those qualities are flowing into the perceptual process, and then they influence, influence, that they flow in. So uh, the English word influence matches um, influx and asava quite neatly. So that's uh, well spotted by Venerable Analio, and uh, I must say his his mastery of English is quite wonderful, since uh, he's German and English is not his first language. So to pick up on Things like that is, I think, very, very astute and helpful. So flowing in, flowing out, you know, it's, it's kind of whichever flavor you like. Uh, effluent, if you like effluence. Uh, Ajahn Tanisra is the only one who uses effluence. No one else can quite deal with that. And kankas are, is a very sort of archaic term that uh, also people don't really use much nowadays. But uh, so uh, if I'm speaking about the answer, I generally use the term outflows, but uh, hopefully it's not too confusing. I'll just uh, call them the influxes here. As with the underlying tendencies, the uh, anusaya, this influence operates without conscious intention. The influxes arise uh, owing to unwise attention, ayoniso manasikara, and to ignorance, avicca. To counteract and prevent the arising of the influxes is the central aim of monastic tra training rules laid down by the Buddha. And their successful eradication, asavakaya, that's k-h-a-y-a, uh, that's kaya, um, that means the destruction or the ending uh, of the uh, of the asavas. So it's not the same as kaya without an h and a long a, which means the body. Kaya is uh, destruction. So asavakaya is a, a common term for enlightenment, like the, the ending of the asavas. The discourses mention, uh, often mention three types of influx. The influx of sensual desire, karmasava, the desire for existence, bhavasava, and ignorance, avijasava. Sensual desire and desire for existence, so uh, uh, karmachanda, and uh, bhava tan karma tanha and bhava tanha, they come up uh, also in the second noble truth as main factors in the arising of dukkha. Well, ignorance, avijja, forms the starting point of the twelve links depicting the dependent co-arising, samupada of dukkha. These occurrences indicate that the scheme of the influxes is intrinsically related to the causes for the arising of dukkha. So whether it's sense desire, desire for existence, uh, ignorance, then all of those are very much woven into what causes dukkha, uh, and uh, they're in the Four Noble Truths and independent origination.
That is, desire for sensual enjoyment, desire for becoming this or that, and the deluding force of ignorance are those influences, quote-unquote, responsible for the genesis of dukkha. The whole purpose of practicing the path taught by the Buddha is to eradicate the influxes, the asava, to uproot the latent tendencies, anusaya, and abandon the fetters. Uh, these three terms refer to the same basic problem from slightly different perspectives, namely to the arising of craving and related forms of unwholesomeness in relation to any of the six sense spheres. So uh, there's a, uh, it seems like a bit of a mixed metaphor there, uh, to eradicate the influxes, uproot the latent tendencies, and abandon the fetters. So um, that's a bit of a mixture of metaphors there, uprooting, abandoning, and eradicating. But uh, if you if you sort of check, make, you can make a mental image of it, um, that uh, of those three and how they work together in quite a, a useful way. If you think of a, a plant like a vine. The anusaya is like the roots or the the uh, the, um, the underground aspect of the of the vine. Then uh, the outflows it flows out of the ground. The, the the vine rises up out of the ground, and then fetters it wraps itself around another plant. So it fetters it ties down like a what they call a maluva or a, a creeper that strangles other plants or what they they have in in Southeast Asia strangling fig. It's a kind of um, fig tree that wraps itself around other trees and, and eventually strangles them and, and swallows them up. But the, the Buddha often talks about the maluva vine that rises up and, and wraps itself around other plants. So that, uh, that in a way, ties those three together, the anusaya, the, uh, the asava, and the sangyojana. The sangyojana kind of wrapping around and, and tying up um, the, the being, like the, um, uh, the fettering of the, the the ten fetters and such like. In this context, the influxes represent root causes for the arising of dukkha that might flow into perceptual appraisal. The underlying tendencies are those unwholesome inclinations in the unawakened mind that tend, quote-unquote, to get triggered off during the perceptual process. And the fetters arising at any sense door are responsible for binding uh, beings to continued transmigration in samsara. A way to avoid the operation of the influxes, underlying tendencies and fetters, and thereby the arising of unwholesome states of mind and reactions at any sense door, is the practice of sense restraint, indriya samvara. The method of sense restraint is mainly based on sati, mindfulness, whose presence exerts a restraining influence on the reactions and proliferations that otherwise tend to occur during the perceptual process. As the discourses point out, sense restraint causes the arising of joy and happiness, which in turn form the basis for concentration and insight. Indeed, living with full awareness in the present moment, free from sensual distraction, can give rise to an exquisite sense of delight. And sense restraint is one of the three uh, apanaka dhammas, which means the dhammas, that, uh, the qualities that are always beneficial, uh, that is, uh, uh, let's see, uh, devotion to wakefulness, sense restraint, and uh, sila. The, the, those are the three uh, incontrovertibly beneficial um, qualities, the apanaka dhammas. Devotion to wakefulness. 
not snoozing. <laughs> Getting up as soon as the, the first ding of the alarm goes. Leaping out of bed with alacrity, as Lumpur Sameda would put it. Especially when it, this place was, a, it was an icebox. Don't think, don't let wisdom get anywhere near it when it comes to getting up in the morning, he would say. Wisdom would always say five more minutes. So at that point, wisdom is not appropriate when the alarm goes off. Just go! It's devotion to wakefulness. Yes? Um, somewhere in the Pali Canon. Uh, I can't. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but it, uh, I can. Yeah, you, if you look them up, panaka. Uh, a panaka means incontrovertible or uh, uh, without question. The panaka dhammas. Such cultivation of mindfulness at the sense doors does not imply that one simply. Uh, sorry. Um, does not imply that one is simply to avoid sense impressions. As the Buddha pointed out in the Indriya Bhavana Sutta, which is the very last one in the Majjhimanikaya, Sutta 152, if simply avoiding seeing and hearing were in itself conducive to realization, blind and deaf people would be accomplished practitioners, which they might be, but not necessarily. Instead, the instruction for sense restraint enjoins the practitioner not to dwell on the sign, the nimitta, or secondary characteristics, anuvyanjana, of sense objects, in order to avoid the flowing in of detrimental influences. So that's okay. The, so this Indriya Bhavana Sutta, this is right at the very end of the Majjhimanakaya. And it starts off with a Brahmin um, uh, is asking about um, how this uh, teacher of this wanderer called Uttara um, called Paras, Parasarya he says, Uttara, does the Brahmin Parasarya teach his disciples the development of the faculties? He does, Master Gautama. But Uttara, how does he teach his disciples the development of the faculties? Here, Master Gotama, one does not see forms with the eye, one does not hear sounds with the ear. That's how the Brahmin Parasarya teaches his disciples the development of the faculties. If that is so, Uttara, then a blind man and a deaf man will have developed faculties according to what the Brahmin Parasarya says. And um, then the Buddha explains, Here and under, when a bhikkhu sees a form with the eye, there arises in him what is agreeable, there arises what is disagreeable, there arises what is both agreeable and disagreeable. He understands thus. There has arisen in me what is agreeable, uh, or, agree or uh, disagreeable, or both, but that is conditioned, gross, dependently arisen. Now this is peaceful, this is sublime, that is equanimity. The agreeable that arose, the disagreeable that arose, and the both disagreeable and both agreeable and disagreeable that arose, cease in him, and equanimity is established. Just as a man with good sight, having opened his eyes, might shut them, or having shut his eyes, might open them, uh, so too, concerning anything at all, the agreeable that arose, the disagreeable that arose, and the both agreeable and disagreeable that arose, cease just as quickly, just as rapidly, just as easily, 
as an equanimity is established. This is called, in the noble one's discipline, the supreme development of the faculties regarding forms cognizable by the eye. And so too with the other senses. Okay. <coughs> when it says agreeable and disagreeable, is that, does that mean liking and disagreeable? Yeah, just liking and disagreeable. Well, that's beautiful, that's ugly. That's a bit of both. In regard to the process of perception, this sign, nimitta, is related to the first evaluation of the raw sense data, because of which the object appears to be, for example, beautiful, subanimitta, or irritating, patika nimitta, which then usually leads to subsequent evaluations and mental reactions. Like, that's beautiful, I want it, or that's ugly, I get, it, I get rid of it. The instructions to bring restraint to bear on the secondary characteristics, anuvyanjana, could correspond to further associations in the perceptual process, which elaborate in detail the initial biased cognition. The tendency to biased and affective reactions is rooted in the stage of sign-making. That's not make, uh, making road signs, but the, the mind forming biases, uh, making signs. When the first barely conscious evaluations that might underlie cognition can arise. In the co context of the Satipatthana Sutta's injunction to contemplate the causes related to the arising of a fetter, this stage of sign-making is especially relevant. It is this stage, therefore, and the possibilities of influence, influencing it to which I will now turn in more detail. So he goes into sign-making, uh, cognitive training and how the mind you know, forms those, those kind of biases. Uh, yesterday, Nevin is here. Is that Nevin? I haven't got my glasses on, so it's Nevin. So you were quoting or uh, mentioning the um, Atakari Sutta, the self to So this is um, it's kind of relevant in terms of when they're um, talking about a person or a practitioner and so on. And uh, as you said, um, the uh, Brahmin comes to, uh, to, the, to the Buddha and uh, having sat to one side, the Brahmin spoke to the Blessed One thus. Venerable Gautama, I am one of such a, a doctrine, of such a view. There is no self-doer and there is no other-doer. And the Buddha says, I have not Brahmin seen or heard of such a doctrine, such a view. How indeed could one, moving forward by himself, moving back by himself, say, there is no self-doer, there is no other-doer. What do you think, Brahmin? Is there an element or principle of initiating or beginning an action? Just so, Venerable Sir. When there's an element of initiating, are initiating beings clearly discerned? Just so, Venerable Sir. Like, when you choose to speak, or you choose to drink a, uh, drink of water, yeah. And you just drank some water. That, that's a discerning a being taking an action. Right. So, uh, so, Brahmin, when there is the element of initiating, initiating beings are clearly discerned. Of such beings, this is the self-doer. And he drank the water. Ajahn Amaro is talking. This is the other doer. And so in the, there's a helpful note. This um, uh, particular translation was done by someone called K. Nizamis, who I don't know. But um, uh, in the note about that is um, kind of what I was saying about the Buddha using conventions of, of speech. 
And um, this is, although the Buddha taught that there is no permanent, eternal, immutable, independently existing core self, Atta, he also taught that there is action or doing, and that, and that it is therefore meaningful to speak of one who intends, initiates, sustains, and completes actions and deeds, and who is therefore an ethically responsible and culpable being. It should be quite clear from its usage in the Sutta and from the argument of the Sutta that kara, in Atakara, must be an agent noun, a doer or maker. And uh, it's also borne out, no pun intended, in the Sutta, um, Sutta number 22 in the uh, uh, Sangyutta Nikaya Kandavaga called The Burden, in which the Buddha says, uh, I will describe the burden, the one who picks up the burden, um, and the, 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 uh, the raising up of the burden and the putting down of the burden. And he describes the, the, the bearer of the burden. Um, the burden is the five aggregates, and the bearer of the burden as the person, the pugala. And uh, so he uses that, that term, pugala, a person. That's the one who picks up the thing. And uh, later on it actually led to a whole school of Buddhism called the Pugalavadins. He said, see, there is a person. So it caused a lot of uh, philosophical debate. Um, but it's just what they call Vohara Vachana. The Buddha is just using the conventions of speech. Um, and it's not intended to imply a kind of a permanent, independent, self-existing entity, but rather um, it's like a, the, the conventions of language that are saying, you know, uh, Annie drank the water, Ajahn Amaro is speaking. You know, it's just uh, uh, what they call vohara, kind of conventions of, of speech that, uh, that refer to that. And um, in Wikipedia, that great source of wisdom, which is Wikipedia sometimes unified with consciousness. On the, uh, uh, if you, uh, <clears throat> if you Google uh, Vohara, Vohara Vajna, or Vohara, like conventional speech, um, it talks about the two levels of truth. So it says, uh, the Buddha, in explaining his doctrine, sometimes used conventional language, and sometimes the philosophical mode of expression which is in accordance with undiluted insight into reality. So, um, Samuti Satya is conventional truth, Paramata Satya is ultimate truth. In that ultimate sense, existence is a mere process of physical and mental phenomena within which, or beyond which, no real ego entity or any abiding substance can ever be found. Thus, whenever the suttas speak of a man, a woman, or a person, or of the rebirth of a being, this must not be taken as being valid in the ultimate sense, but as a mere conventional mode of speech, Vohara Vachana. Vohara is V-O-H-A-R-A, Vohara Vachana. So, if you want to look at that, it's under Paramatta in the Wikipedia, which is a great resource of wisdom. and uh, Not exactly a perfect refuge, but handy to have uh, uh, reliable statements like that. So, any other questions, comments, reflections? Do you think the two truths are difficult? Um, in other words, we have two truths. 
No, not at all. No, they're just like uh, um, when he was. Uh, I forget again. It's not a reference I've memorized, but there's a um, a, a time when somebody asks him, um, you, "You say that all dhammas are not self, you know, dhamma but yet you talk about you know um, this nun who is a stream enterer or, or that lay person who is a Brahmin, you know, you're you know." If there's no self, if all dhammas are not self, who are these people that you're talking about? And he goes, you can almost sort of hear him. You can hear his eyes rolling. Like, <laughs> you know, the the Tathagata uses the conventions of speech in order to communicate, but he is not deluded uh, to to the uh, uh, into the belief that there is separate self-existent permanent entities. So he happily used like language like saying. You know, Nevin is a stream enterer, or, or today is Saturday. You know that he used those uh, ordinary conventions of, of language and concept, um, but without delusion that they were. Uh, he he knew that they were they were conventional truths, but he still employed them. And so, and as he said in that that statement, that the target employs such speech without delusion. So they're they're both important. If you didn't have conventional truth, you couldn't say anything. It's like Ajahn Chah would say, you know, if you didn't have conventional truth, everyone would just be person. You know, we wouldn't have names. Everyone would just be person. Or Sankara. You know. <laughs> It'd be very difficult to organize things. Okay, so I think that's enough for today.